Our scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 17 through 42 to the end of the chapter. We begin in verse 17 of chapter 5. The apostles have been arrested, and what we will be reading today is the concluding part that we haven't read yet. So Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth And said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you? that you should not teach in this name. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. And stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered. And brought to naught or nothing. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee, 
In the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him... They agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Amen. May God. Amen. I invite you again to open God's Word to Acts chapter 5. And our theme this evening is persecution and providence. We began looking last Lord's Day at the last two. Um, at the first two persecutions of the Christian church. That persecution in chapter 4 that we read earlier, that followed, and it was only Peter and John because they had healed that lame man who was over 40 years of age and preached the word. There were many who were interested, but it made a big commotion and it ended up in their arrest. And now in chapter 5, we have the second persecution. And the text says that all the apostles were taken in custody. And it became a a base for us to stop and to consider and learn something about unbelief. Well, persecution is, is a response of unbelief. Because these men did not believe, they are persecuting. And we all understand and agree that persecution is a rejection. You can say many other things about persecution, but everything you say, it will be rejection. What I mean about everything is because you you may lose your job because you're persecuted, or you may be put in prison because you're persecuted, or your life may be taken, like the martyrs um, of old and in the presence And so not every persecution is a martyrdom. Not every persecution means prison, but all persecution means rejection. And all persecution is unbelief. So we learn that unbelief is rejection. And so in our first point, we we will go back in a summary form and just bring a little conclusion to what we began last Lord's Day, looking at the rejection of unbelief. And then we will look at the reasons of unbelief. God's Word makes it very clear why. But it's, as you look at these, these realities that unbelief is rejection, it really bags from you the question, why, why does anyone then dare to not believe? Because of the stark reality of what unbelief is. And finally, the last point will be an angel and a Pharisee. 
This is where we look at the providence of God and try to put all this together um, in a way that, that shows the unit of this whole narrative. So the rejection of unbelief. See, there's absolutely nothing neutral about unbelief. There's nothing nice about unbelief. There's nothing educated about unbelief. And the reason I say this is that many people today say they are unbelievers because they have studied and they have read. See, they're saying, I am educated. And I have not found a basis for which to believe. Unbelief is put as something positive. It is put as something rational. It is put as something very modern, very quaint. But there's nothing even modern about unbelief. And this is what we learn in in this passage. These people rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago. So unbelief is very ancient. And, And even if we consider an unbeliever today who will say, well, I do not believe because I've studied and there's no basis for Christ. This is what I want you to wrestle with, the reality that we're looking at people 2,000 years ago who did not believe, but they were not questioning if Christ existed. They weren't even questioning the miracles of Christ. These unbelievers of our text, they were such believers in the miracles that when they got Peter and John in prison in chapter 4, it says like this, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have ye done this? So see, these unbelievers 2,000 years ago, closer to the facts, did not deny the miracles. But educated unbelievers today say, I have studied the facts and I don't believe the miracles. Have these educated unbelievers seen that their peers who saw the miracles and did not contest them put the dots together? Is it true that there's no basis to believe based on education? based on rationality. Remember what we saw, the rejection of unbelief. These men, those Sadducees, the the rulers and elders and scribes in verse 6 of chapter 4, Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all of these men, and we know um, Pharisees were there too because our text shows Gamaliel who was a very high standing Pharisee. All those people were there and what were they all doing together? They were rejecting the prophecies of God we saw last Lord's Day. They were rejecting the pictures and the types God gave. They were rejecting, of course, the Messiah of God, the messengers of God, and the message of God as well. Unbelief is a rejection of the message of God. You reject everything concerning Christ, His messengers and His message. What is the message of of Christ? It is a message of hope, of forgiveness, of salvation, of justification, of sanctification, of a righteousness that is imputed to us without paying any price, without any of our merit. We receive it merely by faith, by grace. That's the message. And what did they do? They rejected it. So one conclusion that we need to draw, I, I did begin this last Lord's Day, but we need to develop it from here to really nail this down is this unbelief is in truth 
utterly illogical. It is unreasonable. You have to put your reason aside in order to not believe the Christ of Scripture and His message. What I'm asking you to do right now is not think so much of a modern unbeliever. And if you are an unbeliever yourself, I'm not asking why you don't believe. And to consider the lack of logic there, right now, think of the men in those very days. Think of the Sadducees. Think of this Pharisee. Think of Annas who crucified Christ. Why did they not believe? And that's where we see the illogical reality. Why do I say this? Well, like we saw last time, why did Peter and John go to prison? Because they healed a man who was 40 years, older than 40 years, lame his whole life. That's what they said. What was the power and by what name have you done this? And then Peter understands, okay, I've done a good thing. He says, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, and he went on to say it was because of Jesus. But you see what's in dispute. Of course, put aside, understand, it's, it's, their qualm is with Jesus. But these men have healed a man who was above 40 years of age, begging at the temple gate his whole entire life. And, and, and think of even a little, maybe a 10-year-old child could put together and say, we need more of these men. These are the kind of men we should sit and learn from. Because imagine if you two have healed this man who's been 40 years with this lameness. What a blessing Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of Israel would be if we could multiply men like you. And we're going to invest in you. There's no threat to your life. We're going to support you. Teach us how to do that. And beloved, that was one man. And so two went to jail because that man was healed. The second persecution that we're looking at, the the very verse before the one we began reading in chapter 5, verse 16 says, There came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Verse 17, the high priests are rising up in indignation. Verse 18, they laid their hands on the apostles, put them in the common prison. See, this is what I ask you, beloved. Where is the logic? Where is the reason? Are they using their minds? Think of our day. You, you walk through the hospitals and you see people in machines. You see little children about to die. You see parents outside waiting from the operation room just wondering what will happen to their loved ones. And then you hear about men like these. And you go and you examine and these people are healed. This lame man was jumping right beside Peter and John. They could not deny it. He was there. Wasn't this a moment to sit down and talk to these men and ask, what what are we missing? We are the leaders. You all aren't, aren't leaders, but you're doing things that are very momentous. Let's talk about it. But no, put them in prison. 
and, and, and where we're reading. Um, as soon as they're in prison, God's word says very plainly, an angel came and took them all out. The, the next day, these people are all ready for the trial. They, they send to get their prisoners and they're gone. And did you notice in the text, where is the reason where it says when the high priest assembles them, that they're wondering what's going to happen about all of this. And in verse 28, we read, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in the name, in the same name? He's not going to ask where they went. He's not going to ask where they spent the night. Where are the dealings about the grand miracle that evaded every single one of them. Where, where is the logic? See, where is the reason? See, I'm not talking about a man today and his educational needs to then believe. I'm talking about these men. Where is their reason? Where is their mind and their logic? See, they had to put it aside to deal with these men. So that's one conclusion. Now, one other detail here in our first point is, is this. And when we're going to build upon this detail and see where this illogic reality comes from in our second point. But another element here is to answer this. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to understand that unbelief is rejection and that unbelief is illogical? Well, two things come to my mind. There are probably more reasons here. But two things that are very important for the life of the church. This is very practical. To avoid nominal Christianity. Perhaps the greatest reason why there are so many nominal Christians, like professing believers who are not true believers, it's because they were unaware of this very reality. They were not told that if they profess to be believers, there will be a world that will reject their Christ and them and their message if they bear it. And there will be persecution for them. It will be dangerous. See, there are people who join the church because it's advantageous to them. It, it, it gives them credibility with the group of people they are with. It makes them look good in society. It makes them look respectable. It seems to be doing the right thing. There are some who join the church because they feel good about being religious. People are religious by God's creation. And it's only natural to look for the religion that might be less stressful to be a part of. And this is why many people stay with the religion they were raised with. Because that is where there is less stress. You're more familiar with what they teach there. And you have no true heart for Christ. You're not truly converted. But you have to choose a religion. And this seems to be the right one. And many people become religious. And even with the name Christian. Because it's just the natural, easy, safe comfortable thing to do. Now, if these very professing Christians understood how dangerous it is to be a believer, that they could even maybe lose their lives, would they do it? 
They would probably choose a religion that wouldn't be so dangerous. And this is what Christian, this is what John Bunyan is portraying in the Pilgrim's Progress when Pliable wants so bad to go along with, with Christian, but only until he falls in the slough of despond. After which, as soon as he's out, he's back on his way. And, and the idea is, if he hadn't fallen in that ditch, he would have gone quite a long ways with Christian until another trouble. And when he found out that it, when he would have found out it was too dangerous, he probably would then have gone back. And, and the sad news, because it's sad, but there's something of this very reality happening. See, there are professing believers finding out today in our world that it is dangerous to be a Christian because Christians are being targeted. And if their message is that of the Bible, they are being persecuted, even in the Western world. And what's happening? What are we seeing? We are seeing pliables going back and leaving churches and going to churches maybe that, that are less um, close to God's word or maybe leaving churches altogether. That is happening in, in a great way because they're learning that it is dangerous to identify yourself as a believer because the world will reject you. Another reason why it's important to do this is to avoid worldly Christianity in the church this is what I mean. The lack of understanding that, that this rejection to the gospel is, is what happens when you have the true gospel and you love the true Christ. He was rejected. Then his disciples will be rejected as well. When you understand this, it will prepare you for what you will hear from the world. But when churches don't understand this, then they... They get up in arms. The church gets in despair when he sees that people are leaving because you have the gospel message. It offends the hearts of men. They, they reject the gospel, so they leave. And then the church is somewhat pressured and tempted to change the message because they think there's even a, a biblical principle in thinking. We, we want to reach the masses the masses are rejecting the message. So let us change the message to keep the masses. And once they're with us, maybe they'll hear the message. But churches who do that have no more message. And really today, you have to reject everything to keep anybody who is rejecting Christ. And so these are some reasons why it's important for us to understand this, that if people were to leave the church because Christ is proclaimed too openly, if people leave the church because we're saying that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, if people leave a church because they're saying, you know, they emphasize sin too much, and, and why? Because then we need the Savior. This is where we'll see our need for the Savior, but we can only get there when we speak of sin, and, and that offends hearts, and, and see... People may leave because of those reasons. And we need to understand this is what unbelievers do. They, they reject the message. They reject Christ. They reject the messengers of Christ. So it's good that we understand this. We are not supposed to do everything we can to not be attractive to the world. It seems like there's some churches or groups of Christians that try to do that. That's another sin 
that we have to go against. We, we are called to be loving. We are called to be affectionate, compassionate, to be attractive to the world in that way so that they would want the love of Christ that we would have to offer. But we are to be giving the message of Christ that the world needs. Now let us go to the reason, the reason of unbelief. So when we looked at all those things of how, how unbelief is rejection, it makes us want to ask, why? Why is it that they reject? Like, let's think of them again. Why are these Sadducees putting these men in prison for healing so many people, for doing so many good things? And, and why do they get them back and they don't even ask what happened? Like, what miracle happened? You would imagine they're even curious to know, how were you all let off? So we wonder, right, where does this come from? And if it's so illogical, why is it so illogical? Like, what is this thing about unbelief? What are the reasons of unbelief? And this is what we're, what we're hoping to look at um, in, this, in this portion here. Is, does this happen to your heart when you think, wait, if the message is of good tidings and great joy, why wouldn't you want that message? If it's the message of joy to the world, why would you, not, why would you reject that joy? E- even when we think if, if our message is that salvation is not based on personal achievement, it's not something you earn, it is not based on your attainment, isn't that a good message? But then why does the world reject it? It's not a matter of money, we say. It's not a matter of, of means. It's not a matter of merit. But then they reject it. So why? Well, I, I want to start. The, the text that we have will, will help us. But I want to go immediately to one portion in God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2. As I was wrestling with this very question. Because we know God's Word gives the answer. But I want to walk through to see... To, to really examine, see, in all of this, beloved, it's, we're not just looking at the heart out there. We're looking at the heart in here. Every one of us were born with this kind of heart because we're not born saved. But the Lord saves us. It's good that we understand who is it that we are by nature. If God were to take His grace away, this is who we would be. And this is why we would be rejectors And now this is why we would be rejectors. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you, see he's remembering Christians, who they used to be. And you hath he quickened, given life, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our behavior, our way of life in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. These, these three verses give the answer to this question that I'm raising. Why is unbelief rejection? Why does the Sadducee reject these men who have been so good? Because their hearts are dead. 
So this number one reason is God's word says that the condition of the unbeliever is one of spiritual death. That's the only thing that can explain why a Sadducee who sees Peter and sees the man who was healed older than 40 years and he's able to be angry at the one who made him well. And then these very men see all these apostles in front of them and they know that in the middle of the night all of them were released in a miraculous way, in a glorious way, no one can understand and, and they're, they're put right in, the, in, in, in their front and, and they don't even ask about it. They just want to ask, why are you teaching in the name of this Jesus again? They're spiritually dead. So all of these blessings we've been speaking about, all all the message of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, and that these messengers are here to do good because Jesus is still working through them, all all of these things that we talked about regarding the prophecies of God that they're rejecting, see, this is kind of what's happening. Um, Regarding the prophecies that I said that they were rejecting, they, they don't see the value of the prophecies. No matter how many are fulfilled in their spiritually dead heart, they're still needing another one. Remember how they were with Jesus? He fed 5,000 people. Jesus meets them the next day. He says that they are to eat of Him. And they say, well, show us a sign. Moses gave us manna. You do something greater. And we'll believe. See, the the spiritually dead heart is never content with no matter how grand a miracle right before them because they're dead to them. And they don't attribute it to the fulfillment of God and His power. They have their own gods and they attribute it to luck or to chance or to coincidence. Those are the gods of the ancient and of the modern men. It just happened. It's a coincidence. Remember the types. I said that they were rejecting the types of Christ. Well, to them, the the types and figures like we walked through, they're just like spiritual fancy in their mind, their elaboration. And they think of things like this. Jesus said, I will give the sign of Jonah. And they all know what that meant. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish and came out alive. Jesus went to the grave. Three days later, he came out alive. Why do they disdain that? Well, they say that that was another coincidence. And he's probably not alive. We don't, we don't want to believe that. We don't mind how many witnesses. The miracles of the Messiah. Why are they not um, valuing those miracles? If we look at the men of the day today, well, they write articles, they write books, they write dissertations trying to disprove the miracles. There are many theologians who say all these miracles were were just examples that that Jesus was just sharing their food with all those people. There was no true miracle happening. And the men of those days, they have their reason too. They attributed the miracles of Jesus to the power of evil. Now this is where... You and I can put our minds together and try to reason through this. And and if you ever meet this educated man who denies the miracle, have a conversation with him and say, listen, the men who were on your party, because they also were unbelievers, in the day of Jesus, they never dared doubt the miracles because it was staring on their faces. 
You read manuscripts from the opposers of Jesus. They say he did miracles. They had to disprove it, so they said it was the power of Beelzebub. We have that in the Gospels. But the modern man, he's so far away, so he's able to say, well, there's no evidence for the miracle. Well, your friends in the ancient days said there was evidence. But they also didn't believe. You see, rejection. Rejection is not modern. It is ancient. And it's not because of a mind that's thinking too much. It's, it's actually a mind that's not thinking. The messengers, what do they do with the messengers? Well, they just group them all up as a misinformed bunch of people. They're, they're, they're part of, of this whole um, scheme of this man who's just on the side of evil. That's why he has that power. And so all of you are alongside with that. No matter how much good that Jesus was doing. They, they were going even against their own beliefs because none of those rabbis, none of those Jewish people thought that Satan would be so interested in doing so much good. But it was their only way to put something logical to something they did not want to believe. And so, this is the first thing. The first reason of why they rejected, why unbelief rejects, it's because the heart of the unbeliever is in spiritual death. And secondly, we can add to this, because of this spiritual deadness, and it's not able to see the value in all the things that Jesus did, to accept the good news of Jesus is the utmost humility we require. The utmost humility is required. See, this is the one thing these men were unwilling to do. Humility. Humility, because it's what you see would be necessary for them to acknowledge. They had to be humble to acknowledge they did wrong. They had to be humble to acknowledge that their message was right and their own message was wrong. And, and of course, this is, this is just a way to say repentance. They needed to repent and they were unwilling to repent. Um. See, we have a wonderful message to say that the Son of God came to save sinners. But you see what happens. You, you need to admit, I am one. We, we say that we desire heaven, but not with the fear of hell. We, we desire some help, but we don't want to confess our helplessness. You see, the, the message of the gospel at the end of the day is utterly repulsive to the human heart. Because think of the massive humility that is necessary. And this is why I've said it in other sermons that perhaps the greatest contrast, there, there isn't, but the greatest contrast, there, there isn't someone like this, like a Christian who is proud is a complete contrast. Pride, in a sense, excludes you as being a Christian. 
Because look at the humility that is necessary. And, and use humility here, like I said, as a code for, for repentance, as a definition of repentance. See, we're not just admitting that we need to be um, admitted to the hospital. We're, we're not just saying, you know, I need a skilled doctor to care for my need. We're not just saying, I want a skilled counselor to, to help me with my problems, with my mind. We are confessing. If you're a Christian, you have confessed that nothing short than the God of heaven is who you need to fix your problems. The creator of the cosmos is who must heal your hurt. A Christian is one who confesses his utter inability that he has committed cosmic treason, that he deserves hell. When we confess that Jesus suffered hell, we need to understand this means I deserve hell. That's why He suffered hell. If He's my Savior, everything He received on the cross is like a mirror of what I deserve because I'm a sinner. And yet Jesus took in my place. Do you realize this, Christian? And and this is why some of us as Christians struggle with humility. It's because we, we, we haven't come to terms to even understand what am I as a Christian? As a Christian, I, mean, I have declared that heaven had to open and Christ had to come down. See, God had to give His very best, His only begotten Son. It wouldn't serve to be a Gabriel. It wouldn't serve to be Angel Michael to solve our problems. And Moses, we read this morning how it was too much for his shoulders to carry God's people. We need a greater than Moses, a greater than Solomon, greater than David. We needed Christ. And who is Christ? God. You see what I mean? We we need God to die on the cross so that I can be saved. And so when we share the gospel, are are we understanding what we're having this unbeliever have to confess and to do? We're we're literally saying, you know, I, I want you to understand, you're to get to the very end of yourself. And isn't that what the gospel is? Christ said, no one is worthy to come after me if you don't take up your cross and follow me. And what does that mean? That means that we must be ready to die for the sake of Christ. And think of these very men then. Think of the humility they would have to um, live to admit that Christ was their Savior. Annas would have to confess his folly back when he tried Jesus. Herod would have to confess his disdain of Jesus. Pilate would have to utter his foolishness. Um, Caiaphas would have to own his blasphemies. The Sadducees would have to confess that there are angels after all. And the Pharisees would have to confess that Christ was the one who attained all righteousness and not them. See, why does unbelief reject Jesus? It's because of the state of the human heart. It is dead. And because it's dead, it needs to be um, humble, utterly humble, and the dead heart is utterly proud. But then there's more. Why does unbelief reject Christ? Because God's Word says, as we read in Ephesians 2, that the condition of the unbeliever is not just dead, which means 
makes you think of somebody who's still. But it's one of active wickedness. So we read that not only in, in Ephesians 2, not only were we dead in our trespasses and sins, but it says that we walked. See, we're, we're people who are dead, and yet we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. It's our behavior, our way of life, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as others. So see, the unbeliever is very busy in this life of sin. And when we are confronted with Christ, it is a confrontation with a life of holiness. See, the very word forgiveness already says this. And, and this is what we need to understand. As a, as a pastor, I'm always so overwhelmed with the joy and the privilege that I can preach from the pulpit that Christ forgives every sin, that a sinner would come, that you would receive that forgiveness, cleansing, and then the righteousness of Christ. See, these are glorious things. But what am I asking you to do? You need to turn from a life of sin. You need to look at the sin and say, bye. I want you no longer. That's the repentance part of faith. It's very joyful to proclaim forgiveness, but I am proclaiming you're a sinner who needs it. But see, when it hits the heart of the unbeliever, he's active in his sin. He's embracing his sin. He has plans for his life with sin. Sin is in his bosom, in his embrace, in his heart, in his plans. See, he's not just dead. He's very active in his deadness. He desires bad things. And when we bring Christ, he needs to say goodbye to the bad things. That's what repentance is. To believe in Jesus means to forsake sin. It's not like a second degree of faith. It is what faith is. To turn to Christ, you turn your back from sin. And, and the person who is lost loves his sin. So even though the message is astonishing, the desire of the heart is for the very thing that we proclaim that they will have freedom from. We say you will be freed from your sin. And that unbelieving heart says, but that's not what I want. I want my sin. I want freedom to sin. See, not only would those people that I list have to admit they did wrong, let's go back to those people. Annas would have to now bow to King Jesus. Can you imagine? See, this is the humility. See, and this is the, the element of the heart having to acknowledge, I need to stop my sin of rejecting Jesus. Anna, who's, who was represent, Annas, who was representing all of the Israelite people, he would have to come before all the Israelite people and say, I, as your high priest, have greatly sinned, the greatest sin that can be sinned. I am to be an example of the Messiah to all of you. I am the one who signed the papers and sent him to Caiaphas to then sent him to Pilate in Rome to go to the cross. And now I bow to the king whom I have crucified. 
But he doesn't want to do that. Because he likes being a high priest who is seen as, as famous, as good. Herod would have to now get a crown of gold. And with the most precious stones he could ever conceive. And he would have to come before that one whom he allowed his men to mock. And he would have to put all his men to the side and say, Stop what you all are doing. This is the king and I get my crown. And my crown's not beautiful enough. I'll get a greater and grander crown and crown this king, Jesus. But see, Herod likes his crown. And he will not trade it. He likes his sin. Pilate. He would have to plead for him who is the truth. He would put that basin to the side and say, Thou, O Lord Jesus, the truth and the life, wash my hands. And not my hands only, but everything, my head to my feet. But Pilate didn't want to do this. It would look too ugly in the sight of the people. Caiaphas would have to confess him as Lord. And finish tearing his robe, not in anger, but in repentance. And think of whoever scourged the Lord Jesus Christ would have to say, Here, scourge my back. You gave your back to the smiters. I was the smiter. Lord, now plow through my back. And if that soul had dared say that, you know what he would hear from the cross? I forgive you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, the Sadducees would have to accept there's more to this world than what we think. There is a spiritual realm. Jesus did die and was resurrected. There is a resurrected resurrection. There, there are angels. There are souls. Those were the things the Sadducees rejected. They would have to agree that the treasures of heaven are greater than the ones here on earth. In many ways, that's the one thing none of them wanted to trade. All of that would mean they lost their positions. The high priests would lose their jobs. If the Messiah came, we don't need the priests anymore. In short, they would have to relinquish their sins, their pride, their lust, their greed, their iniquity. But they loved them too much. Could this be why there may be some unbeliever here today? That you honestly realize you love your sin more than the forgiveness that is to be had by one look to Jesus. You see, it's, it's only someone spiritually dead that would actually believe and do that. Because see, even though your sins might seem they have a pleasure, and that you are gaining the whole world because you have them, you are in truth losing your soul. All of these men I've been talking about have been long since dead. And every single one of them who died without repentance lost everything. There's no more crown for Herod to go to, nor position for Pilate to yearn for. It's illogical not to believe. It is irrational. And these are the reasons why. There's a fourth reason that we can talk about that to accept this message of Christ, to accept the Messiah, to accept the gospel, 
It's putting this all together with what we just saw. See, it's just too high a price to pay. It's too expensive. They, they, in a sense, have listened to Jesus when he said, count the cost. They've counted the cost, and they've, they've realized that to follow Jesus, they need to say goodbye to all their sins. And they see their sin as currency. They see their sin as precious jewels. And, and they say, we don't want to pay that. It is, in essence, what we give, right? It's the only thing we can bring to Jesus. It's our sins. Those, the only thing that come with our signature, as it were. Everything good that we do, every good gift from, comes from above, from the Father of lights. Every love, mercy, grace that you have, it's the fruit of the Spirit. What are the only things we come and bring at the foot of the cross? It's all our sins and iniquities. And see, for some people, that's actually too costly. Because they don't want to relinquish their lust and their lives and their thefts and their adulteries they want to keep them that's what these men were wanting to do see they they would have to confess their sins they would have to forsake them they they would have to humbly say we we utterly did wrong we were not zealous for god we were serving satan we we attributed the power of jesus to beelzebub that, that is a blasphemous sin. And we were wrong. We were the ones being motivated by Beelzebub, not, not Jesus. And they would have to then forsake their sins and follow Jesus. And that was just too expensive to do. Now, the true believer, and you, and you might say, but, but pastor, isn't it? Salvation is not by paying anything. And it's absolutely true. See, a believer, a true believer, doesn't see that as a price at all. We're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He, he didn't think that big bag was currency. He would give everything to get rid of that bag. He would pay money if he could. Only he realized there was nothing he could do until he saw Christ. It's the only thing that would relieve him of that weight. So the believer comes without money and without price and takes home spiritual milk and honey and he becomes the richest man or woman that ever lived in this world. And our lands and homes can be taken away and yet we have everything because we have heaven and the God of heaven and the Son of God who came in the Spirit who's in us as temples of the Holy Spirit. And what do we do? We, 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 we give our sins at the foot of the cross? That's no payment what all, at all. There's no money that I have to give, no obedience I have to perform. It's all by His grace. See, the believer doesn't think there's any money involved. It's not too expensive. When Jesus says to the believer, count the cross to follow me, you say, what, I might be persecuted, I might go to jail? That's not money. That's not expensive, Jesus. I want to follow thee. I'm ready. Please take me. Forgive me of all my sins. But see, that's why the unbeliever rejects. Because it's too expensive to accept Jesus. And then fifthly, there's still a fifth reason that we can think of this message. Now I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 1.18. This message is foolishness to our natural mind. It's like a conclusion of all that we've been seeing. See, the unbeliever looks at this message that if I believe in Jesus, I will have my sins cleansed. 
But I have to forsake them. I have to repent of them and acknowledge that I've been living utterly in a foolish way. And that man who died on the cross is my Savior. He died, but he saves me. He died in weakness, but I will rise in strength. That's folly. So that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish. That's a phrase for the unbeliever, the lost. Foolishness. To them that perish it is foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. See, this is the logic of the mind of the unbeliever. I love money. And to be a Christian, I must be generous with my money. Then I prefer not to be a Christian. I reject that life because I love money very much. Why do I bring this example? What were the Christians doing in those days? They were selling things and giving it to the church to provide for all the needs of the people. See, that's one more way that you see the utter illogical nature of rejecting this new religion. They had no beggars among them. They had people who came from other lands, utter strangers to them. And what were they doing? Selling their lands and giving it to them unconditionally because they loved them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, they should have sat down and say, you have a welfare system there that seems to work. How can we put this in action? No. Because they felt if we become Christians, we might have to be seen as people who need to do the things you're doing. And I don't want to sell my stuff. This is their reason. They, they thought, well, I, I love immorality. And if to be a believer, I must be modest with my clothing, pure with my friends, careful with my computer, and even my thoughts, then I prefer to stay where I am. It's foolish to trade my freedoms for what you're promising. But even though the unreasonable thing is that with all that pleasure for a while, which seems like gaining the world, you actually lose your soul. See, you will only believe that if you're saved. And now you see the logic. But the unbeliever, he really believes he will conquer the world. That's his heaven. That's his hope. Remember, the Sadducees didn't even believe there was a heaven. This world was their heaven. And they wanted as much power and wealth as they could amass. So why does the unbeliever reject Jesus Because the state of the human heart is dead. Because humility is too great a price to be paid. The active wickedness of the heart makes them want to keep sinning. And the foolishness of the cross. But there's a last one. And this is a wrapping up of all of this. They simply did not desire to believe in Jesus and live their lives unto Him. This is exactly what Jesus says, a group of people. In John 5, 39, He says, Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. And you will not come to Me 
that ye might have life. When he says, you will not come to me, he is literally meaning, you do not desire to come to me. The new King James put it that way, but you are not willing to come to me. Another version says, you refuse to come to me. The literal translation is, and you do not will to come unto me, that ye may have life. Right there, you see the whole sermon we've been preaching. Life. You will have life. Well, the logic is, well, then go to Christ to get life. And Jesus is saying, you don't want to. You don't want life because you're dead. And to have this life, you have to be humble and you have to put all your sins at the foot of the cross. It's too expensive for you. See, that's where their logic is, but it's utterly illogical because that is death. And this is life. And the ultimate reason why the unbeliever does not believe is because he doesn't want to believe. And that's true for the unbelievers 2,000 years ago. That's true for the unbelievers today. They don't want to. It's not just that they can't. We we hear people say, well, I, I can't believe. They imply that they want to. But that's a sin, beloved, because they don't. They're lying. If it's true that you want to believe, but you're not saved because you can't believe, you want to, but you can't. You're literally saying the problem is God doesn't want to. I'm good. But God isn't. Because I want to. That doesn't exist, of course. And and that is blasphemy. To accuse God. The unbeliever doesn't want to believe. And it's true. He doesn't want to because he theologically can't. Because he's spiritually dead. But see, that very spiritual deadness makes him not want to. But I want to end very quickly in our third point. I need to bring this because it's our third point, and you'll see how it wraps all this together. An angel and a Pharisee. It seems like a point that's not in parallel. The rejection of unbelief, the reason for unbelief, an angel and a Pharisee. I admit that it doesn't follow the norms of rhetoric there. But we saw it in the text that this Pharisee comes, Gamaliel. He gives that astonishing reasoning. It makes those men who were ready to slay these apostles, says in verse 33, they took counsel to slay them. But this Gamaliel gave the idea to to just wait on providence. And he invokes the possibility that that work might be of God. And if it is of God, we are fighting against God and not men. Where did that come from? And I read about this Gamaliel. You, you know, you've heard of him. He's the very master, leader, rabbi of Apostle Paul. He was a very respectable man. There's no indication that after this he became a Christian. There are people who doubt that he was one right now because of the things he says. He's, he's equating these apostles as basically terrorists and, and completely lawless people, possibly. So he's not someone who believes But God uses him to deliver these apostles. Yes, they were scourged. 
but they're alive. And the text ends where they keep on preaching Jesus Christ. And I just want to end with this. We are in a world that will reject you if you're a believer. We are in a world that hates the message and hates the messenger because they hate the Messiah. And that can, of course, understandably, especially in some of us with more tender souls, bring fear and bring insecurity and bring worriness. But this is what you need to understand. And this is, this is where I end, this simple message. You see what Christ is teaching his apostles. They're rejected of men. Their master was crucified. They maybe heard the idea that some may took counsel to slay them. They're worried for their lives. But the night before, an angel came and delivered them. And the next day, a Gamaliel rose and delivered them. What is God saying to these apostles? He's saying, men will reject you. The world will reject you. That's what they do. But I will never forsake you. And I will use angels to mock the Sadducees who deny they exist. And I will use a Pharisee who most likely still does not believe in Jesus to deliver those who do. Because God is showing that the hearts of men are in His hands. So, beloved, you heard much about rejection. There may be a soul here who may be even thinking, yes, to be a Christian is dangerous. Should I be one? You should. There's nothing more blessed. There's nothing wiser to do. There's nothing better to do. There's nothing safer to do because there will be eternal glories in heaven, even if there may be persecution here on earth. I can say this with all my heart. There's nothing that's more right to do. And do not be scared of the rejection of men because God is saying in our text, I will not reject you. The Caiaphases and the Annases of this world may reject you, but I won't. If they don't come to me, I will reject them. So it comes to your heart, who would you rather be rejected by? This world or by your Creator? And when you come to Christ by faith, and if you are a Christian today, you have this certainty. The whole world may be against you, but God is for you. He will use angels and Pharisees, if need be, to prove that He loves you and to deliver you as He did to them. It is safe and good to be a believer. We rest in the crucified. And we rejoice with the disciples. When they departed the council, they went rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. You see how they don't think it was costly? They saw it as a badge of honor. The blood that was streaming from their backs to them were already the crowns that they felt they would receive in heaven. Because those were the sufferings of Christ. They were having koinonia with Jesus. Fellowship. And beloved, this is where you and I as Christians, you can be excited about this. The suffering is even a fellowship with our Savior who suffered for us and before us. We have nothing to be scared of. But we should be warned. Let us pray. 
Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, Lord, for the hope that is in Thy Word. We pray, O Lord, that Thou would open hearts of any who are not believers. Lord, how we see that heaven needs to work in the heart to give faith so that there will be a desire to believe so that there will be the quickening from the dead of unbelief, the death of unbelief, so that there would be even this reasoning now that is so simple that it is not costly to follow Jesus. After all, Thou, Lord Jesus, are the one who paid with Thy precious blood. All I do is cast my sins at the very foot of the cross in confession and in repentance, and I don't want to carry them anyway. To begin with, I can't. They will cause my very eternal death. Lord, how we thank Thee. We pray that Thou would strengthen believers, convert unbelievers, and we pray that believers who may have begun somewhat close to Thee, that Thou would bring them even closer to walk that life of communion with Thee that we've been speaking of. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.